0: Azarius Capital Management is an independent investment advisor registered with the Pennsylvania Department of Banking and Securities. This podcast is being provided for information purposes only, and it does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any interest in any fund managed by Azarius. Any such offer or solicitation will be made only by means of a confidential private offering memorandum.
1: Welcome to the second edition of the Azarius Capital Management Uranium Podcast Series. Azaria's Capital specializes in turnaround opportunities in the small-cap value universe, and that turnaround focus often leads us to industries poised for a cyclical upturn. Uranium is a commodity, and like all commodities, its price will be determined by supply and demand dynamics. Today, we will take a deeper dive into the demand side of that equation. I'm Darren Heitman, the founder of Azarius Capital, and I'm joined by my colleague and partner, Chris Gillespie. Hey, Chris. Hey, how you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? Good. Excellent. Are you ready to uh, talk some uranium demand? I am. I thought it would be helpful if we provided some context for demand. And so I thought maybe I'd just start with some basic history. So uranium, we know it was developed as a weapon initially in the 1940s to end World War II. And then from there, they realized they could harness the power of splitting an atom to provide electricity. The basic uh, science behind it is they use the heat that's, that is produced from splitting an atom to boil water. And that turns a turbine and, uh, and produces electricity. And so the world really thought that they might have the solution for mankind's electricity needs, energy needs for all time. And that might be a bit of an exaggeration, but they, the world, and particularly the United States, embarked on building out a fleet of nuclear reactors to produce electricity in the 1950s. And that was a really strong growth market from the 1950s all the way up through the early 80s. And a number of events transpired to cause the industry to plateau as measured by the number of nuclear reactors in operation uh, in beyond the mid-80s and all the way through 2010 and one of those events was obviously Three Mile Island if you're my age and, and Chris's age you vaguely remember that and it really turned off the public to the benefits of nuclear power and then in 1986 there was Chernobyl although that was less of a real-time impact because people weren't really aware of what happened until years later. But nevertheless, the public turned against nuclear power, and that's the reason that the number of nuclear reactors in operation really plateaued uh, for decades. Until about 2010, when the story gets worse, because in 2010, Japan experienced the uh, tidal wave that caused a nuclear accident accident, at uh, a nuclear reactor named Fukushima. And as a result of that, Japan closed down all of their nuclear nuclear reactors overnight. So with that, that brings us up to 2011. And now I'm going to start asking Chris questions, our resident expert. So Chris, are you ready? Yes. All right, so tell our listeners how many nuclear reactors there were in operation prior to Fukushima.
0: Sure, so um, in in 2011, there were about 440 nuclear reactors in operation and uh, about 45 of those were in Japan. So when Japan closed down its entire fleet, that was a a 10% decrease in the number of operating reactors and therefore about a 10% increase in, in demand for uranium just overnight and in addition Germany as a result of what happened that Fukushima decided to close a number of their reactors as well. So that was a pretty big one-time hit to demand in 2011 just overnight as a result of that, that tidal wave.
1: Yeah as a demand shock of 10% which no commodity could really withstand and particularly uranium and that's really the reason we've been in a bear market for the last 10 years. But the good news is going on 10 years later, the number of nuclear reactors are actually back up to pre-Fukushima levels. Where did those incremental reactors come from? Was it simply a matter of Japan bringing their reactors back online?
0: Uh, No, uh, Japan has been very slowly bringing their reactors back online. I think they got up to nine, restarted, but then they've actually closed a couple of those back down this year and last year for security reasons. They're trying to make them more secure against uh, potential terrorism. So they've only restarted, let's just say they restarted nine, and then um, they probably only plan to restart somewhere in the neighborhood of twenty to twenty-five. So, you know, let's say only half of that's going to come back. But where the new reactor builds have come from is China has been a, a big builder of new nuclear reactors over the last several years. We've seen new reactors coming on in places like India, Russia, a lot of Asia in Eastern Europe, developing-type countries. And so since uh, 2015, uh, new reactors completed per year have averaged about eight, eight per year since then. And um, that's the most since the end of the Cold War, since around 1990, 1991. So, you know, very good growth in, in brand-new reactors, and that's got the, the fleet back up to right around where it was at the time of Fukushima in 2011.
1: That's one of the things that we like about this industry is that the... Uh, the outlook for growth is really pretty visible. There are uh, currently 55 new reactors currently under construction, and so those are very likely to get built. So as a quick recap, pre-Fukushima, we had around 440 nuclear reactors operating. Then Fukushima occurred, and that dropped down to around 400. And now, 10 years later, we're back up to 440 with the outlook to add about eight per year for the next several years. So for the first time in decades, the uranium demand is actually growing on a secular basis. So that's uh, that's a really good backdrop for this commodity.
0: Yeah, that's right. And in fact, maybe one thing to mention here is that last September, the World Nuclear Association came out with their estimates for um, demand growth for uranium for the next 10 years from 2019 through 2030. And... Uh, they have growth now under all all of their possible scenarios, which is the first time that's happened, uh, again, since about 1990. And the, their growth projection per year is about 2% per year going forward. So that was pretty big news for, for a number of people who were not fully up to speed as to what's going on in uranium demand and, and new nuclear reactors being built.
1: Yeah, well, let's go right to that because being a citizen of the United States is one of the reasons why we we were surprised when we first dove into this industry that it actually had a reasonably good growth outlook. So let's walk through where these nuclear actors currently reside and stop on each country and talk about the dynamics.
0: Well, as you might expect, the, the you know, the biggest economic power in the world has the most reactors. That would be the United States. There are almost 100 reactors in the United States. And so annual demand for uranium for those reactors is in the high 40s, you know, 48 million pounds a year. Next highest would be France. France has, I think, 57 reactors, supplies about 70% of France's electricity. And that equals about somewhere in the maybe 25 million. Pounds of uranium a year. So 12% of uranium demand is out of France, 25% out of the U.S. And then in third place and rising quickly is China. You know, China has about uh, in the neighborhood of 50 reactors now, and they are continuing to add at a rapid pace. In fact, last year they announced that they plan to start building six to eight new reactors a year through 2030. So you know, at that pace, they will become the second largest pretty quickly. And then they have 15 reactors under construction right now, in fact, out of the 55. So, you know, those are the three biggest. And then beyond that, Japan was was also large with, the, as we mentioned earlier, about 45. They're down to nine, but they would, you know, they'll probably get back up into the 20s. They do have stated gold, to have uranium be a, a big percentage of their electricity generation because they are without a lot of natural resources. So um, they're very... Dependent on energy imports, and that's one way they can um, reduce that dependence. And then you get, you know, countries like Russia and India and Ukraine and places like that, Eastern Europe. But really, it's all around the world. You're seeing plans for uh, new reactors in, in places that you might not expect, like you know, Middle East, Saudi Arabia, et cetera. So it's a really global phenomenon.
1: Right. So I believe that most people, if you ask a man on the street what they believe the outlook is for uranium, particularly in the United States, they would say it's a dying industry, probably like coal. What's our view of what's happening in the developed world in the United States and France? Are plants closing?
0: Well, I guess maybe we could start with the U.S. There have been a number of announcements recently where nuclear operations said they were going to close their plants. And after looking at that, the the companies in consultation with the U.S. states have actually decided to reverse those decisions. Most recent, uh, that just happened uh, a couple months ago in March in Pennsylvania. The Beaver Valley nuclear plant has two reactors, and it was scheduled to shut down here in the next year, but they have now decided not to do that. And we've seen that in uh, you know, a number of states, Connecticut, New Jersey, Ohio, Illinois, all of these reactors that had been uh, you know, scheduled to close have gotten reauthorized and decided to stay open. And, you know, that's partly because there was a plant in Connecticut that was going to shut down, and then they realized it was providing half of the state's energy. And, they you know, they didn't want to do that. So um, the the company worked with the state and got a new deal. And so that's happening in the U.S. We've also seen in France, for example, when Macron came in, he sort of made an announcement that he was going to reduce France's reliance on nuclear reports since, I've stated that he's kind of reevaluated that, you know, for the same reason, because it's a huge source of carbon-free, low-cost electricity. Same thing in South Korea. They made an announcement they were going to close plants, and now we're seeing them reversing that. In fact, they're actually building new plants in South Korea. So, you know, one thing that's had a, had a pretty big effect on that is Germany closing down their plants and then having to go and rely on more CO2, more fossil fuels to provide their electricity Other countries have looked at that and realized that uh, nuclear is a very good source of no CO2 energy. I I read a recent study in 2018, France and Germany had about the same amount of uh, electricity generation, but uh, Germany had uh, 10 times the CO2 created compared to France. And and the primary reason is because France gets 70% of its electricity from nuclear, whereas Germany has had to go back uh, in the direction of a little bit to coal and also gas to, to replace the nuclear that they've closed down. So, you know, I think with, with people being more concerned about CO2, the existing plants are not shutting down. And, it's you know, it's also a driver in China. Why are they adding so much new capacity? For the same reason, because, it's you know, low cost. Once you put it in, it costs a lot to build, and once you put it in, it's low cost. Baseload power that doesn't generate a lot of pollution, and, you know, that that is an issue uh, in, in China and India and a lot of other
1: markets around the world. Right. We built in some closures in more mature markets in our demand model of around two per year. But that's the outlook isn't nearly as dire as what conventional wisdom might believe. And if anything, the winds are starting to change, whether it's because of, as you mentioned, the role that nuclear power can play in reducing carbon emissions. But China probably doesn't really care that much about carbon emissions as far as it relates to global warming, but they, like every other developing country over uh, history, want, still wants a cleaner environment for their population and better living conditions. And so that's definitely, in our opinion, driving their decision to continue to expand their, their fleet. But I guess back to the point of what's happening with the older fleet and what's happening in countries like the United States, there'll probably be some shrinkage. But it's happening so slowly that it doesn't disrupt our demand thesis, uh, which calls for growth.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: So every plant that gets closed is going to be uh, offset by five new builds, roughly.
0: Yeah, if you have, uh, let's say, eight new ones a year and two or three closing a year, you're adding five or six on a net basis per year, which is a couple million pounds of uranium demand a year.
1: Right, on a base of around 200. So that's where we get the one or two percent. Right. So we just spent... The first uh, several minutes on just talk, I mean talking about the number of nuclear reactors in operation because in the end that is what drives demand for uranium. That these nuclear reactors consume a certain number of pounds per year. And so, what is that, Chris? How many? So you have a nuclear reactor operating; it runs off of off of uranium. How many pounds does it consume on average?
0: You got 435, 440 reactors right now. Each reactor consumes around, let's say, 420,000 pounds a year. And so the math on that is that gets you to about 185, 186 million pounds a year of demand. And then in addition to that, there are what's called a first cores or initial cores, which is when you have to put the beginning core of uranium fuel into a reactor. And, um, that number is about three times the annual consumption. So, you know, you have to put in about 1.2 million pounds in to start each reactor. So with eight new reactors a year, that's another 10 million pounds of demand. On top of that, demand in the high 190s, and then there's a couple million pounds of additional uranium demand for other uses. So that gets you to the 200 million pounds a year demand range.
1: Of consumption. I mean, so it's used up. So one of the questions we get, what I've received over the last couple years talking about our thesis, well, first of all, are there any substitutes for uranium? Could uranium be displaced by a different source of power?
0: Not at this point, no. Nothing
1: that we know of. That could be a short answer. I mean, if you have a nuclear reactor, it runs off of uranium, and there is nothing on the horizon to suggest that they might be able to put a different fuel source in that nuclear reactor, at least for the next decade. Another question that is, is there any risk that these nuclear reactors become more efficient? And so instead of needing 200 million pounds a year, maybe they could produce the same power with 150 million pounds a year of consumption.
0: I think, you know, there there were big improvements in efficiency throughout the, uh, let's say, the 90s into the 2000s, but the efficiency levels have to have sort of plateaued here and flattened out over the last five to ten years. So it does seem like they've figured out the ways to, to maximize production out of, out of these reactors, but there hasn't been a lot of new increases in efficiency over the last several years.
1: And one of those efficiencies was simply capacity utilization, and that has a limit to how much better it can get. You can correct my exact numbers, but over the last several decades, capacity has gone from the high 70s to the low 90s, I believe. Do I have that right, Chris?
0: I think that's right for the U.S. And for the world, the numbers are a little lower, but yeah.
1: So, so far we've talked about the, the existing fleet. Uh, we know that there are several nuclear reactors under construction. So the outlook for consumption is actually very visible. I guess we should talk about what are the risks of global recession impacting demand. We know electricity demand goes down. It is somewhat economically sensitive, not as sensitive as other areas of the economy. But would a global recession impact the amount of uranium consumed in these nuclear reactors?
0: Very unlikely that it would have a large impact. Um, We kind of went back and looked at the last four global recessions. We did the calculations and and, uh, the amount of electricity generated by nuclear power actually went up by about 2.2% during those recessions. So we think that the demand for nuclear generation is actually much more tied to reactors under construction and then new reactors coming online. So as we look at this recession being caused by um, the coronavirus, there are some unique elements that are causing demand for all energy sources to go down. But Offsetting that for nuclear is that there are going to be eight new reactors coming online. So that's right off the bat. You're having demand is up by, let's say, one and a half percent. Now, you know, the, some of the larger organizations that study global energy demand think that global energy demand is going to be down fairly significantly this year. But nuclear will be down, you know, less than the overall number because, again, it's baseload power and it's very cheap to run. And so it's cheaper. Uh, marginal basis and way cheaper than coal, cheaper than gas. So we think generally in a recession, nuclear is uh, unlikely to go down. In this recession, it's going to go down a lot less than some of the other sources. We could definitely see it going down low single digits, 2%, 3 4% this year, but um, that will be much smaller decline than um, the other
1: sources. Right. And I don't want to steal the thunder of our next podcast, which will cover supply in greater detail. But even if we see consumption decline by a couple percent, Supply is actually going down by more than a couple percent, so we don't see any risk to our thesis tied directly to this global pandemic. The flip side of having such a visible demand outlook is that you don't really get a positive demand shock. There isn't much that can go wrong on the demand side. There's also not much that can go right. The longer term... In addition to the new nuclear reactors, the large nuclear reactors that we know are in the pipeline, there's this uh, technology called small modular reactors. So I think it's worthwhile talking about what those are. Why are some countries trying to develop small modular reactors?
0: Yeah, those are a potential source of new demand. They are, as the name says, small. And uh, they can be, you know, for example, Russia last year, just implemented the first floating reactor, so they now have a reactor that they can move on water to uh, various cities in case something goes wrong with their power source and they need some some power. So I guess the idea is they're small, they're not that expensive, they don't require a big upfront capital investment, but they can actually make they can produce a lot of power because you know nuclear provides a lot of bang for the buck. So it could have a number of different uses, you know, military, industrial. Applications like mining and also power for undeveloped areas of the world, where you can kind of go in there and without a lot of without a lot of big upfront cost, you can provide a lot of power. And um, throughout history, the ability to provide electricity to places has been a hugely hugely positive for economies and the people who get that electricity everywhere. So that's an area that that people are excited about. It's probably still a few years out, but. Um, You know, Russia did the floating reactor last year. I know the U.S. military has some plans to to, uh, try to accelerate developments of small reactors for their use as well, so it's something to keep an eye on.
1: Yeah, they um, currently there's a big push to make that happen, and I think it's more likely than not that it will because not just government but private industry is really seeing the benefits of that, and it seems like there's a roadmap to bring that, technology to the market in an economical way, definitely within the decade, if not in the next five or six years. Now, these are small, so they're a fraction of the size and also the fraction of the cost of one of the large current reactors that are in operation. So any one modular reactor isn't going to consume a lot of uranium, but if it works out the way that it could, there'll be potentially thousands of them uh, around the globe and could actually be a meaningful incremental source of demand longer term, but definitely beyond our time horizon. We expect this uh, supply deficit to play out in the next few years, and hopefully we'll be moving on to our next investment thesis. But it's still an interesting source of incremental demand long term. So thank you, Chris. Really appreciate your thoughts. So I thank you for your time, and... uh, I look forward to our next the next podcast in our series where we'll do something similar on the supply side.
0: Always a pleasure. thank you, Darren.